Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We invite best-selling and award-winning authors to discuss their stories, their works, and whatever else that might bounce around a writer's mind or flow through their pen. And we bring them free to some of the more than 100 public libraries in the Twin Cities metro area. This is the book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. We don't judge slackers or fakers or hummus dip makers. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This Club Book podcast features Rebecca Rasmussen at Stillwater Public Library. Literary fiction writer Rebecca Rasmussen garnered accolades in 2011 for The Bird Sisters, an achingly authentic, almost completely character-driven novel chronicling the remarkable lives of two spinster sisters in rural Wisconsin, according to Publishers Weekly. Rasmussen also pens short fiction. Her stories have appeared in or won prizes from notable journals including The Mid-American Review, Narrative Magazine, and Tri-Quarterly. Rasmussen currently resides in California where she teaches writing at UCLA, but her creative interests remain in her native Midwest. Her newest book, Evergreen, also centers around siblings and plays out against a picturesque backdrop of Minnesota's verdant Northwoods. Good evening. Thank you so much for the lovely introduction. It's really kind of amazing to be back in Minnesota during the fall and I guess maybe it's the beginning of winter for you all but I just came from LA which is uh, when I left it was 85 degrees um, and I'm not kidding about that and when I landed it was I think 40 yesterday or something like that so um, it's kind of a rough transition in some ways uh, not bad or good just it's really so different to be writing about a place like Minnesota or Wisconsin and be where you're actually being burnt by the sun <laughs> every day. Um, so you know a lot of people think that it's difficult. They think like how do you write in LA because I think a lot of people, especially you know me before I came um, to live you know in Los Angeles, I thought of LA as like the movie star land and where um, I guess some of my friends said you'll you'll never have a real conversation again it will all be very superficial out there um, so I was a little concerned about that but of course it's turned out that there are perfectly lovely people you know pretty much anywhere and there's still front lawns and back lawns and pumpkins on porches and um, wonderful places to trick-or-treat with my eight-year-old daughter um, so that's been kind of nice uh, one of the things that I've loved about LA is um, I think because there's so much distance between here and there, it's easier for me to see the place a little bit more clearly than when I'm in it. So I always say to people, because they wonder why I'm so interested in the Northwoods, um, why I write about that um, and, and how do I do that when I live next to the 405, which is a major highway in LA. And one of the things I think is that things become very distinct when you're far away. Sometimes I think, you know, they tug on our hearts a little bit or we miss those places. I know um, when I was writing The Bird Sisters, 
which is about, I hate to say spinster sisters, it does sound sort of awful, doesn't it? Uh, it's, it's been reduced to the spinster sisters. I'll say Millie and Twits um, and hope for the best on a, a sweet little farm, but I think um, those books were written also, that was written in Massachusetts, um, really far away from the place, and it became clear to me that there's something wonderful about not being home because you miss it so much and your memories are the things that sort of bring all of the things to life that when I lived in those places, maybe you take for granted just a little bit because you walk by them every day or you're in the woods and it doesn't matter that that tree is called a tamarack or you know a spruce or whatever, um, but it forces you to sort of rethink what you love about the place and how do you bring that place to life for other people who may not know or love it at all. So that's um, sort of the great challenge as I set out to write in LA every day. And um, I'm grateful though for all the sunshine. People have said I'm very tanned <laughs> tonight, but it's really, it's just from running outside. Um, what I like to do, my writing routine is pretty simple. I drop my daughter off at school and then I, you know, she lives about three tenths of a mile from the house and I have one of those fancy running watches that tells me how far I've gone and whether I can stop yet, have I done enough. Um, but I walk home and there's this beautiful sort of grove of magnolia trees and all of these little bits of beauty there too beside a highway that most people that makes the news all the time because it's so dreadful and everybody's stuck on it for hours and hours and that's what most people think of. And I think of one day I hope that I write the LA book too because there's these little bits of beauty all around that inspire me, even when I'm not writing about that at all. I've only written one story that's set on the West Coast, and, um, and I don't know if it was very good yet, but uh, it does inspire me. So I sit in my little desk, and um, it's in my bedroom, because in LA, everything's very small. There are no beautiful big houses that I can afford anyways. So we're stuck in a little UCLA apartment. Um, but there's this beautiful tea tree outside my window and the hummingbirds come and I think that's all I need to kind of get back to that place within myself where I feel like there's inspiration and there's a bit of calm within sort of the storm of life in a sense um, to get going. So for me writing in LA, a lot of people ask that question if I can, how do I do it there? And I say it's easy, except that I've been noticing when I go on book tour that I'm usually pretty upbeat and people go away with the impression that it's somehow super easy to write these books and that, oh, she seems very pleasant. She jokes around a lot. It's, it's all nice. Um, and I think that is a big part of who I am. And I think it's really hard sometimes to figure out how you want to present yourself as a writer because I'm a lot of different things. I'm a mom, I'm a runner, I'm running my daughter to swim lessons, I am doing sort of like menial tasks around the house all day, I'm vacuuming, I'm in sweatpants while I'm doing all of this, it's very exciting. Um, and it's hard to come out and figure out what should I tell people, what would they want to know, especially for people who want to be writers or who are writing, what's encouraging but realistic, um, what can I go away with saying that encompasses sort of everything about who I am um, as a writer and also as a person because those are inextricably linked for me. Um, so one of the things I did want to tell you is that I didn't say this on the book tour this year with this book in July. This book, Evergreen, which is my second book, was really difficult to write and I don't think I stressed that enough. Um, 
I was in LA and the sun was shining on everyone else but me, apparently, for that year. But um, what happened, and a lot of people don't, they ask about the publication process and how that works. And this is a little bit of that kind of story. But um, with the first book, my first book was on this um, press called Crown Publishing, and that was part of Random House. And if you don't know this, a lot of the publishing houses have all of these tiny imprints. Um, some are bigger than others, some are more well-known than others. And you know, you just hope to get on one of them <laughs> and call it a day. Um, and I did, so I was on Crown and I had a really delightful experience there, but then um, as the paperback was coming out, my editor was let go. And when that happens to an author, sort of your whole world gets, you know, shifted and there's a lot of upheaval and you kind of don't know where you're going to fall. Is someone going to catch you and think, she's great, I want to take it on too. Um, and I was in between books and they felt the next book that I was writing was too literary for them. And so I was cast off into like the darkness of Rebecca land, which is, you know, where you start to, to doubt what you're doing a little bit and to get really worried about it and try to figure out what kind of menial job can I do to make the rent next month if we need the money because now there's no book money, apparently. You know, all of these sort of real life things that come in and shift the kind of work you're doing or shift what you feel you're capable of doing. Um, so I had a wonderful agent who's always, that's what you want to have, you want to have a wonderful agent who supports you even when you're very down. And she decided that she thought the best place for me would be at the public, uh, the imprint Knopf, which is where I ended up landing. But before I landed there, um, I handed the manuscript in to my agent. She handed it in to the publisher, and um, it was kind of a under-the-radar submission. And I think she did that strategically in case there was a, mm, some things could be fixed, and then we'll look at it again. Um, and that's exactly what we came back with, with a long editorial letter that said, we need to fix all of these things before I could take a look at it again. And one of the things that was missing from this book um, in its initial draft was that it was told from only two perspectives. And in the finished version that did make it into print, there are four different voices. And I guess I just didn't know. It took a while to figure out in the process that it was missing two very important people's voices. Um, and that was what was making it not as dimensional as it needed to be. So. I came back very excited about this letter, thinking, oh yes, I can definitely do this. I'm so excited, I'm thrilled. I was cheerleading for myself. And my agent said, well, how fast do you think you can get it done? And I said, oh, it's just adding two parts, like three months tops. I've got it, I've got it. And the three months turned into over a year, and it turned into starting from the very beginning because you could, I couldn't just go in and manipulate the sections. I couldn't just put a few things in there anymore. Um, so that's when all of the dark Rebecca days started that I don't usually talk about. Uh, that's when one day I woke up and I was like, what? I have bug bites all over my body. And I thought we had bed bugs because there's like a bed bug thing in LA. I'm like, oh no, we're going to have to move. What's this? And it ended up I was sleeping on my daughter's air mattress in her room because I'm like covered head to toe with these like rash-like thing, you know. And it ended up that was um, a benign viral rash called pityriasis. Don't worry, not contagious. It's okay. Um, and then on top of that, so I was getting, and I'm trying to write this whole time, very stressed out. And on top of that, I got shingles in the same period. And then we were talking about it in the car, Sally. I got celiac disease. And it was all in the middle of this book. So I feel like sometimes 
I make it seem really easy um, to people that, oh yeah, I just got another book published, two books, but it was, <laughs> it was really a tough experience and I really, it, I just didn't know if it was all going to come together and that was the point where I think a writer's life is already, it's so tenuous and you don't know if you're going to be able to make it um, financially or emotionally. It's very difficult and you meet all of these people, I think especially when you go to an MFA program. Um, who have like a writer's persona and who are, you know, super invested in that persona. And it's hard just to be a kind of nice mom that takes her daughter to swim lessons. It's really hard to compete with that persona. Um, you know, both on the job market when I was looking before my husband went back to school and just on a daily basis, being sort of a regular person and also writing about ordinary life in the way of like everyday situations between families. Um, it's hard to stand out that way. I know that a few writers have, but they're so unique, right? Alice Munro is one of them. Carol Shields is one of them. They write about the ordinary in this extraordinary way. Um, so those are writers that I've always admired, and that's something that when I'm having those dark days and the rashes and viruses are coming and going, that get me through. I always have to go back to what I love about it. And it's none of the stuff that's surrounding it with business. It's all about the pleasure of the work. And so when I stop to remember that, it makes it a little easier, even if I end up working at you know, Trader Joe's one day or something. There are a lot of Trader Joe's in California. Um, so that's a little bit about the process of writing the book. And I feel, I feel happy to have mentioned that, especially that this is going on a podcast for other people to hear because a lot of people also look at me and they're like, oh, well, you're fairly young. I've been writing for 50 years and it's you know, been so hard and I haven't had a lot of success. And I tell you, for most people, it doesn't come easy either. It didn't, I, like I get another rash next year, I'm sure it'll be exciting for all of us. So <laughs> I am a little embarrassed that maybe I've mentioned this on the radio somehow, uh, but, but we'll make it through, it's good. Um, so this book is um, about Minnesota, as the introduction said, and I think this is one of those beautiful covers for me that says a lot about the book. And I feel like if you look at this cover and you think, yes, that's interesting to me, the feeling of it, um, I think this is a book then that would resonate with you a little bit. Um, for me, you know, you don't, I don't get any control over the cover. I have like one opportunity to veto a cover and it usually, that's just once. And I've already vetoed the paperback, so it's not going to be this, unfortunately. It's going to be something else of a lesser <laughs> desirability to me. But this is one I loved. I saw it immediately and I thought, I never would have picked it myself or thought of putting it together that way. Um, but I really think it represents like the main themes of the book really well. So I love when that happens, when you get something that you feel like kind of culminates like into all of your hard work into this one image and someone got it. You know, she went home and did artwork and I think that's pretty miraculous. And I got lucky with the Bird Sisters hardcover too because the lady was crinkling up old paper and putting birds on them and it was just, their stories are really neat too. Um, so this book follows three generations of a family that's basically homesteading in northern Minnesota and it begins in 1938 and it starts with a woman named Eveline LeMay, and she is 18 years old in the story, and sort of that wide-eyed in love, I'm marrying for love um, feeling where she is sort of looking at the world with 
through the rose-colored lens, you know, where she just, she's so hopeful. And what she's agreed to do is to marry a man who's an immigrant from Germany, and he's decided that he wants to start a taxidermy business, but in the town that they're in, the fictional town named Yellow Falls, they can't, there's a little bit of discrimination already against him, and there's already a taxidermy shop, so he's got to go further north and try to catch people coming down, hunting from, you know, so that they don't have to go all the way to Yellow Falls. They could stop and bring the animal to him, and then he would deliver it. So he's got this all planned out, except that he has been used to preserving, um, like, butterflies and these delicate things the way his father did in Germany for the museums. So totally different work. So now he's like working on large animals or is going to try to work on large animals. And um, you know when they go to start homesteading there, he's gone ahead and his name is Emil and he's gone ahead to get the cabin ready because there's been this big flood and it's made the cabin uninhabitable. So actually like it's been flooded in there, he's drying things out, he's living on the roof at one point. And she ends up a few weeks later joining him when things are starting to dry out. And she has this secret that she's pregnant, she hasn't been able to tell him yet because they've been separated for a few weeks and you know she's nervous upon her arrival. And they do make it through their first winter, which you all are from Minnesota, so you know that there's some triumph in that in 1938 in the middle of nowhere where nobody's around. Um, and she ends up having this baby in the middle of the winter with nobody around because the baby comes early and they weren't able to make it back to Yellow Falls in time. So sort of miraculous things have happened from the get-go that they've been able to manage. And then the part I'm going to read you just to get us sort of into what the book's about is this first moment of spring after a very long, hard winter. And basically, what happens is there's this woman named Lulu Runk, and she's the breath of fresh air who comes and, you know, Eveline hasn't spoken to anyone but her husband for five months, which is a very long time if you've been married, so you, you all know this, just talking to your husband, you know. Um, and, and same with him, too. They've just been a very isolated twosome, and now there's this person coming into their life for the first time that they didn't know was there. So this is the scene of um, Eveline and her, what will come to be her new friend, um, Lulu. Spring brought forth birch leaves on silver branches and tender green buds up from the softening ground. It brought bloodroot and wood anemones, southwest winds and melting ice, and on an afternoon in late April, the weak hucks should have been born according to the medical world, it brought Lulu Runk. Eveline was sitting with Hux in a rocking chair on the porch, trying to get him to latch on to her breast. If giving birth was the hardest thing she'd done, then getting Hux to eat was the second hardest. She couldn't tell if he was getting a flood of milk or none at all. In the middle of one of her coaxing sessions, Lulu came marching through the forest and up to the cabin, her coonskin coat unbuttoned and flying behind her like a feral cape, and her child flying in front of her to avoid getting swallowed by it. Straighten up, she said, and Eveline pulled her shoulders back. It's not you I'm talking about, Lulu said, pulling back her boy's shoulders but looking at Eveline. Lulu spit into her palm and wiped it on her boy's cheeks, which smeared the circles of dirt but didn't get rid of them. Then she matted down his ragweed hair and made him swallow the blade of blue stem he was chewing on. 
One of us has got to be polite, she said, brushing a leaf off the front of her trousers, which were the color of mud and cut for a man. Her hair was short like her son's and stuck up in the same places too. Lulu Runk was a tall, solid woman, made larger by her booming voice and the vigor of her coat. I'm sorry, Aveline said, dwarfish at five feet. It's not you I'm talking about, Lulu said, again. More than six months had passed since Eveline had seen or talked to anyone other than Emil, who was down by the river fishing for bluegills in the cattails. Each morning after the ice had begun to heave and groan, he'd go down to the river with his rod, a feather jig, and a float he'd made from balsa wood, and come back with that evening's supper. He and Eveline would eat as if they were trying to make up for winter's deprivation. They'd take turns scraping the blackened skin out of the cast iron fry pan. Eveline lifted the nursing blanket and looked at Hux pleadingly. I used to do that too, Lulu said. He's hungry, Eveline said. When aren't they? Without being asked and without asking, Lulu climbed the steps of the porch and sat in the empty rocking chair beside Eveline while her boy ran laps around the cabin, a toy gun in his hand. Tufts of matted brown fur from her coat fell to the porch floor during the maneuver, and though any other woman would have hastily stuffed the tufts into her pockets, Lulu put her feet on the porch railing, exposing a hairy ankle. Don't let him yank on your nipples, she said, offering a cigarette to Eveline, who blushed. He'll take until you have nothing left to give. I don't smoke, Eveline said. You should have seen mine with this one, Lulu said, raw as meat. To her boy, who was zigzagging around the cabin, bushwhacking milk thistle with the barrel of his gun and yelling, yee-haw, she said, you're making me nervous. Why don't you go pick some mayflowers for our neighbor? I'm guessing she likes the pink ones. Yes, ma'am, the boy said, running off with his toy gun, yelling, pow, pow, pow. Lulu shook her head. That's Gunther, born with a gun in his hand. This is Huck's, Aveline said, pulling aside the nursing blanket, embarrassed by the words raw as meat and nipple, and yet relieved to hear them at the same time. Try giving him your finger to suck on, Lulu said. Aveline offered Huck's her pinky finger, bracing herself for his fury. When you get tired of that, give him a bottle, Lulu said. I don't have a bottle, Aveline said, as Huck slapped eagerly, magically, at her finger. Why hadn't she thought of this? What kind of mother was so resourceless, so bottleless? I'll bring you one tomorrow, Lulu said. Eveline wondered what she meant by neighbor. After a long winter, the very idea of Lulu made her hopeful. A friend. You just changed my life, Eveline said. Lulu put out the cigarette with her boot and flicked it off the porch. For the better, I hope. She held out her hand, which Eveline shook. Lulu runk. I know who you are, Eveline said. I used to see you in, in Yellow Falls. Because she realized how much she missed talking about things that husbands weren't interested in, interested in she added, ain't something I'm likely to forget soon. Lulu's mouth got crooked. I only do that so people will stay out of my way. She lit another cigarette and passed it to Eveline, who pulled the nursing blanket over Hux's face and held the cigarette between her thumb and index finger like Lulu. What's your name, Lulu said. Eveline LeMay, I mean Sturm. You're nervier than you look. 
The two of them sat on the front porch most of the morning, enjoying the sun and cool spring wind, which made Eveline think of those lazy Saturdays and Sundays growing up in Yellow Falls, when her mother would make blueberry pancakes and her father would listen to his favorite radio program, and Eveline would swipe spoonfuls of maple syrup when no one was looking. Tuna was flying herself dizzy, trying to keep up with all of spring's birds. While they rocked, Lulu smoked more and Hux fell asleep. For the first time in weeks, the world slowed down and Eveline could hear herself think again. It turned out Lulu lived in what Eveline and Emile had thought was the abandoned cabin on the other side of the river. We were gone this winter, Lulu said, trapping up north. We're only back because Reddy was cleaning his rifle one day and shot one of his toes. You'd think he was dying for all the fuss he made. Reddy's my husband. Our trapping days are over. How long have you been married, Eveline said long enough for him to drive me crazy. He's like a brother you want to punch. I don't want to punch a meal, Eveline said, waving to him as he came up from the river through the forest, a rod in one hand and a string of bluegills in the other. Give it time, Lulu said. She stood up and called for Gunther to quit horsing around in the meadow and bring back those mayflowers straight away. You need a cowbell, she said to Eveline. That's what I use to herd my menfolk in. Will you stay for lunch, Eveline said, the taste of fish already on her tongue. No thanks, Lulu said, I have a hard-boiled egg somewhere in here. She reached into the pocket of her coonskin coat, and instead of an egg, which sounded wonderful, Eveline hadn't had one since September, Lulu pulled out a rumpled envelope. I almost forgot why I crossed the river, she said. When I was in Yellow Falls a couple days ago, Earl gave me this. He said you all moved out this way during the fall but he says a lot of things that aren't square. If I'd known you were here for sure, I'd have brought you supplies from the general store, or a few chickens. Gunther got on his, his hands on it if you were wondering about the dirt. You didn't get our note then, Eveline said. What did it say? My husband wrote it, Eveline said, motioning to Emile. After Eveline introduced Lulu and Emile, Lulu tucked the cigarette she'd rolled but hadn't gotten around to smoking behind her ear and walked up to the meadow to retreat to retrieve Gunther, who was minding his toy gun instead of her. Even when they'd made it through the forest into the swelling river, Eveline could hear Gunther yelling, pow, and Lulu yelling, it's not healthy to shoot your mama, which made Eveline smile. Um, so that's, you know, the introduction to life kind of coming into the story in a way, and these two families that end up intertwining and their histories overlap. Um, in a lot of ways. I think Lulu is one of my very favorite characters in the book. She is what everyone who's read the book calls her like the coonskin coat lady. And she's sassy and says what she thinks and has a remarkable strength that I always wish I can have. I always have one character that I sort of aim to be in life. <laughs> Somehow it makes it in there. So like a psychologist would have a fun time with me. But um, so she, to me, is the heart of the story. and. I think sometimes the, the most difficult part about being a writer is, you know, you have to move on from the last project and you have to go forward to the next one. And one of the hardest things, I think, is to let those characters go and to know that when you're writing the last words on the page, even if it's not going to get published, it's never going to belong to you the same way again. And 
there's something a little sad about that. And often, you know, I'll, I'll spare you the whole detailed version of what happens when I write the last sentence, but, you know, there's weeping involved, there's a lot of, you know, emotion, but I think it's true. And I think um, I was so excited about the Bird Sisters being published after looking and looking and looking for agents and going through, you know, like 70 queries or something, <laughs> that I was so happy and so excited about the process moving forward at that point that I didn't take enough time to savor the part I love about this is when you get to the end and you feel at this moment in time you've fulfilled sort of everything that you're capable of and even if that's flawed and you know you're going to see that later on that it's there and it's real and it's something that's wonderful um, to experience and I, I so quickly shoved that aside to get promoting and get doing this and go on Facebook you know all the things they want you to start doing and with this book, I think I'm learning my lesson to um, keep something for myself, a little bit of it, instead of giving everything away. Um, and that's why, you know, I was talking in the car with uh, my ride, who was wonderful and generous, thank you, Sally, um, about not going on social media so much, like not doing some of those things that are really now expected of you in these big ways, and saying, you know what, if that makes a difference, but it makes me like healthier and happier, then I'm gonna stick with that. Um, so I've learned to savor that. And I think um, it's hard though, because this book, you know, it came out in July, but I actually finished writing it two or three years ago now. So it's hard to even remember certain parts of it. I was doing an interview um, for Milwaukee NPR with this wonderful guy named Mitch, and he was asking me one of the central characters in this book, her name is Nama, and she ends up being Hux's sister, and it's on the inner flap of the book, so I'm not ruining it for you if you haven't read it, um, but she ends up being a child of Eveline's that Eveline gives away um, to an orphanage, and one of the things he asked me was that, so he's like, oh, I've been reading this book and her name means so much. Can you tell us about like its dual meaning? And I'm thinking as he's asking me, like, I have no idea what, what you're asking at all. And I'm trying to like hedge a little and, you know, I'm like, oh, what's in a name? You know, names are, it's, just, it's not that, that big a deal or something. And of course, after the interview, I was like, I'm so sorry, I just, I forgot. And I, I didn't want it to overtake the interview because that wasn't his question about like my memory skills, but I had to go back and I was like, where is it, where is it? You know, and I was like, on page 140, it told me that the meaning was, you know, it was a dual meaning, either pleasing to God or pleasing to the devil. And I was like, oh yeah, the central, like the crux of her character, and I can't even remember that. So that tells you a lot too, and you know, I think that's what I'm talking about when you have this loss. Um, the Bird Sisters too, there are whole scenes that I have just a faint re recollection of writing, and I don't even remember the spirit that I was in when I wrote it anymore. I remember the endings of everything, you know, so these like climactic moments where you're like, no, did she get the guy or not, you know? But some of these little moments, I, I'm just not a person who's going to like sit and read my own book at night. I think my husband would be like, excuse me, what are you doing? <laughs> um, I think I'm pretty wonderful, so I'm just rereading chapter eight, thank you. Um, so people do ask me that too, do you read the book? No, I have never read the book. Again, it seems sort of strange to me to want to do that. Um, and when you get to reading it, you start to, if you're any writers here, you start to be like, oh God, I wrote that? 
an editor, why didn't that get edited out? That's not very good. Or you see all the sort of clumsy things about your characterizations, things that you thought were pretty good the first time around. So maybe it's scary to go back to. Maybe you have to leave it behind in the hopes that you're writing something better and better and better each time, even though readers will always be sort of connected to one of your books more than another one, even if we've agreed, oh yes, this one's a better book, they still like the other one better, that's okay too. Um, but that's, I think, the difficulty of being a writer too, because you're also a reader, so you have all these sort of neurotic things happening at once. And maybe that's the, the ultimate, you know, sort of saying with me is that, you know, I'm a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and a little bit of this too, all at once. Um, so my, I think my friends think I'm a little crazy. So, but maybe not in the good, interesting crazy, just a little crazy. Uh, what are you gonna do? Um, I think that I was just going to read you just a little bit more um, from one of my favorite parts of the book, because I never get to read this. I've never read it out loud, except to myself in my hotel room not too long ago. Um, and I think I wanna do that because too, I was thinking about like, what's the experience of writing? Because there are some writers who have this divide where they think writing should always be pleasurable. There are a lot of people who are in that camp and then there are the other people who are like, no, it's often tormenting and terrible and this. And I kind of feel I'm splitting with a lot of people right in the middle of that. But today I was watching like trashy TV in the hotel room because I don't have cable at home. And you know, what else am I going to do? I, I guess I could have seen the city today and done something productive, but, but no, I sat there and I was like, oh, this is a terrible show, but I can't look away. There's this um, TV show, I, and you know, you don't have to nod if you're familiar, if it embarrasses you, but I know that you're out there. I know that you know what this is. It is called Naked and Afraid. Do we know what the show is? Okay. I'm not kidding, it's called Naked and Afraid. See, you try looking away when you see something like that on TV. So I'm like, what is this? So it's like a survivor show and they take two random people who don't know each other and put you in like some extraordinary circumstance. And the one I saw was two people thrown into the jungle in Malaysia for 21 days <laughs> without anything. They're naked and afraid. Get it, there you go. Uh, but I was thinking like, oh, that's a little like writing. How does this analogy work for me? Because you know, by the end of it, like there are leeches all over their body, but like the end of it, they look horrible. They've lost like 80 pounds, they're a mess, you know, like things that I didn't even know existed have like eaten them in, in some way. And yet they're really happy and proud of what they've accomplished and they've managed to like make things out of nothing and go down these dead ends and avoid monitor lizards and you know all sorts of uh, juicy goodness and i was thinking you know writing is a little like that it does feel like there are these battles but by the time you get to the end of it you're so happy and so overjoyed that it just it's on there it's on the page somehow that you just satisfy yourself with that and that's the story i end up telling all the time the good one but I think part of that journey, I was like, I have been naked and afraid, metaphorically, metaphorically. I write with clothes on, don't worry. There's a window right by my desk. Um, but the part I just wanna read you is, um, like I said, one of my favorite parts, and it's the second generation of people in the Northwoods in this fictional town called Evergreen, and it's Hux, which, who we were introduced to um, in the last little section I read, and he has just come from the orphanage, this orphanage um, called Hopewell, and he's met with this sort of terrible woman named Sister Cordelia who 
claims to have loved this girl who ends up being his sister, Nama, but you know, it's a twisted kind of love and it's in the name of God, but it's, you know, in everyone else's terms, abuse. Um, and so she's managed to escape and run away from the orphanage at 14 and Sister Cordelia has told Hux that really the only place she could be is at one of the logging camps up north and you know automatically that's like a ding 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 moment like that means really she can only be one thing because the kind of girls that are going up there for the most part are prostitutes and so he has this quest like he's just his father has just passed away he's just learned that he even had a sister and he's probably like the best guy I've ever known. You know, he doesn't, I think one of the reviews said like he doesn't have like a mean bone in his body and, um, and that doesn't disconcert me in any way. He's, he's one of the, the good people and he feels like he, I think he can't get his life right until he makes this hole and, and tries to make it right for her. So he's gone up there and he is, trying to bring her home and he's you know gone past all of these very you know I think desperate girls who are sitting on the ground waiting for the loggers to be done for the day and it's you know he can't do anything about it he's stuck with it um, until in walks this girl that he knows is his sister and this is sort of where this scene picks up and he you know has this inclination to bring her home and he doesn't of course understand everything she's gone through or if he'll be able to manage that, but he's going to try. Um, so this is Hux is, you know, sitting in a, in a bar and the bartender has just served him food and you know, drinks and he's waiting around trying to figure out what to do next. The bartender looked at the door and at the woman who was on her way into the bar. He gathered up the condiments on the shelf behind him, stuffing what he could back into jars and putting them in the kitchen. Brace yourself, he said, here comes a tornado. Even though he'd never seen a picture of her, Hux knew the woman who came through the door was his sister, the way he knew in his heart what she was doing in the logging camp. She walked in wearing a white undershirt and tight jeans that were stuffed into a pair of scuffed cowboy boots. She had long black hair down to her waist, which was full of leaves and sticks and pine needles. Out of all the women he'd seen today, she was the only one who still had a mouthful of teeth. Her body was long and lean and leggy, coltish, but there was steel in her stone-colored eyes, something old and hard and sad. They were just like his mother's. I'll take a shot of rye, she said to the bartender, plucking an olive from one of the jars he didn't have time to hide. The bartender glanced at her skeptically until she looked around the room, set her sights on Hucks, and said, you know I'm good for it. Just this one, the bartender said. After that, I need to see some money. You don't think I'm charming anymore, she said, swinging her hips as if there were music playing. Unlike the women outside, she wasn't wearing makeup or cheap perfume. Hux didn't know what that meant. You used to like it when I came in here. You used to call me darling. Do you remember that? We'd go out back in the sweet grass. You used to pay for what you took, the bartender said. You used to, too. She looked at him seriously for a minute before deciding the whole thing was funny. She laughed, but in an awful way. Hux put out a few bills on her behalf, which only made her laugh more. You're all the same, she said, every one of you. 
A single dimple appeared at the left corner of her mouth, and it broke Hux's heart to see. All he could think of was getting her out of here. The smell of grease from the kitchen was making him sick. His thoughts were making him sick. The words out back and sweet grass. A bell rang outside, which meant the men would be getting off work soon and would come in here looking for relief. Hux couldn't let her go with one of them, or more than one of them, or all of them. He couldn't watch her sell herself for an olive, or a shot of rye, or whatever it, it was she wanted this far north. The cook brought out his food, but Hux couldn't touch it. You want some, he said, sliding his plate over to her. She was hungry, he could tell. Her expression was the same as the strays that lived in the dirt alleys back in Yellow Falls. What do you want for it, she said. She eyed the hamburger, but made no movement toward the plate of food or the empty stool next to Huck's. Nothing, Huck said. Nama, he thought. Nama. Did you hear that, Bill, she said to the bartender. He's my fairy godmother, father. He doesn't want anything. I heard, the bartender said. Yeah, I've heard that one before, too, she said. I have something that belongs to you out in my truck, Huck said, visualizing the piece of pink paper in the glove compartment. He wanted to take off her boot and see if that curve was still there. It'll take more than a hamburger to get me in your truck, bud, she said. Hux handed her his wallet, which contained just under $100, what was left of the money his father had put in the sugar tin before he died. Leah had tried to get him to spend it on a kayak. She said a leaky old rowboat was no way to cross the river. When she was mad about her shoes getting wet, she used to hide the oars in the forest. Nama looked through the wallet, took out the crisp bills, and counted them one by one before she stuffed them into the pocket of her jeans. I'll call you the Lord Almighty if that's what you want, she said. You're one of the sick ones. Drive up here even though you have a wife and kid, right? You're either going to be rough, which will cost you extra, or you'll want me to hold you. I know your type. I just want to talk, Huck said. At least you're not bad looking, she said, plucking a fry off his plate. Your beard's going to scrape me up, but I can live with that. Some of them you have to wait till dark to be with. You'd think they'd smell pure like the trees with what they do all day, but they don't. It's disappointing if you want to know the truth. She narrowed her eyes. You sure you know what you're doing? No, Hux thought, because he didn't. He offered her a peppermint stick, which she tucked into her shirt pocket. The next one he offered her, she ate right in front of him. When she licked the peppermint stick, she closed her eyes for a minute, as if the sugar were transporting her somewhere bright and sweet and cheerful. She swung her legs a little on her stool, but stopped when she noticed Hux looking at them. When she'd chewed up the last of the red and white swirls, Hux got up from the stool, hoping he wouldn't have to ask her to follow him, which he didn't. She took his arm, and the two of them walked to his truck. So you're a gentleman, then, she said. Do you mind if we drive for a bit, Huck said, opening the passenger door for her and closing it when she got in. That'll cost you more, she said. All right, Huck said, putting the key in the ignition and trying not to think about what she thought he was enlisting her for. The two of them drove up through the twisting dirt road past a group of men who were working on taking down an old-growth pine tree in what was left of the light. A few of them were standing on stakes and harnessed to the trunk high up in the tree, and the others were looking on, waiting with chainsaws and the chipping machine that would make mulch out of the branches. When they first moved to Evergreen, Hux's father had cleared the land around their cabin. He said he'd never worked harder on anything than all those stumps, all that pesky milk thistle.
Hux's mother said he used to leave when the sun came up and come home when the sun went down. She saw him as much as she saw the moon. Can I smoke, Nima said, putting her feet up on the dashboard. She pulled out a pack of cigarettes and lit one of them. Want one? No, Huck said, breathing easier once they'd turned out of the camp and were headed down the county road in the direction of Evergreen. When the pines that towered over the road turned into grass and weeds, Huck steered the truck to the side of the road. The county police might drive by, Nama said. They come out here sometimes. Though he didn't want to frighten her, Huck's locked the doors. So that's how you want it to be. I knew you were too nice to be normal. Can I at least finish my cigarette before you unbuckle your belt? Sister Cordelia, Huck said, because he didn't know how else to tell her why he was there. He hated that she was, he was wearing a belt. He hated Sister Cordelia, his father, even his mother, for a few beats of his heart. This wasn't how it was supposed to be. They were supposed to have grown up together like he and Gunther had. They were supposed to be brother and sister, not what she thought they were right now. Hux expected her to try to unlock the door and run away from him. He'd been so occupied with trying not to hurt her, he hadn't thought about the possibility of her hurting him. As if she were an animal, she started clawing at his face and neck. She growled at him, she bit, she snapped. Christ, 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 she said, swiping at Hux's eyes with her fingernails before he could raise a hand to protect himself. She was yelling and crying all at once. You don't get to do this to me, she said. You let me go. Hux wasn't sure whom she was talking to. When she'd scratched his skin raw and the blood turned his collar red, she started scratching her own face, and Hux used his force to pin her to the seat so she couldn't hurt herself. I know what happened to you, Hux said. My mother is your mother. I'm your brother, Hux. As if his name was made of magic, Naima stopped fighting and looked up at him with her big river stone eyes. Unlike Hux's mother's, hers had tiny streaks of green running through them. The streaks were tenuous, like the first of spring's leaves. Your name was stitched on the corner of my blanket, she said. Hux was still holding her wrist against the seat. He was tangled up in her long hair. It wasn't even really my blanket, was it, she said as if that possibility hurt her more than the scratches on her face. I don't know, Huck said, easing his grip on her. Nema closed her eyes the way she had when she was eating that peppermint stick and only opened them when the heater came on, blowing summery air onto them. Outside, the light turned from yellow to orange to pink. What do you want, she said, softening, which made Huck's wonder which girl, this one, or the one who'd traded herself for so little in the bar, was his sister. Hux didn't know what he was doing in the logging camp any more than he knew what he was doing living alone in a rustic cabin deep in the North Woods. He looked down at his sister. He thought of all the lost years. And even though he couldn't get them back, they couldn't get them back, he wanted to try anyway. He wanted to make what was wrong right. Nema was wearing a small silver cross on a chain around her neck, which pinched her skin a little at the clasp. She smelled like tobacco and peppermints. I want to take you home, Huck said.
And with that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our Club Book audience for questions and comments for Rebecca Rasmussen and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering what perspectives Rasmussen started with when writing Evergreen, in which she added later. Um, I started with Eveline's section and then there was a Huck section, but the Huck section looked really different because it was a totally different time period. It was like him, nothing to do with Nema at all. Like she didn't have a voice or a part. It was sort of like she was the cipher in the story, but you never heard from her. She was sort of haunting the story which it started, the whole book started as a short story, which I think made sense in that format. And I thought, you know, since I'm new to the novel writing thing, that somehow that would transfer and it just wasn't quite giving her any power or any sort of um, agency. And I think that's what was probably frustrating as a reader. You're hearing all this about her, but we never get anything from her perspective. And that's what they felt. I think we're missing that. And then. The last section, which is from this, the little girl's perspective, and it was my very favorite part to write because it was finally like, ah, oh, happiness, thank you. Uh, we've gotten here already, and uh, she didn't have a voice directly, and so um, that was one I just felt like sort of capped off the generations in a way um, that I think about my own family. You know, with the Bird Sisters, that that book was based a lot on my great my grandmother's story and my great-grandmothers particularly, um, and it was kind of fun to do that from this generation looking back and seeing where you arrive at. And so that must be a fascination with me because I seem to keep, I keep doing that in some way. Except the new book I'm working on is, you know, present tense, which is all very weird because, you know, things uh, like cell phones can work into the environment. I'm like, ah, what are you doing here? You're a computer, get out. You have no place in this story. It's an ax or nothing. So that's, you know, an interesting transition. Our next question is about Rasmussen's connection to the Midwest and her interest in writing about Minnesota. I'm actually from Wisconsin and Illinois originally. Um, my parents were divorced, so I have to say both states because I shuttled between both of them, which generally confuses people. Uh, if I have to pick, I'll say Wisconsin first. Um, but Minnesota, my experience, um, I was thinking about the Northwoods of Wisconsin when I was writing about Minnesota, but I felt I went to summer camp for eight summers up in northern Wisconsin, and to me, it's so sort of distinctly camp and Eagle River and Manaqua, and I, it was hard to not see those things there. And I hadn't been to a place you know, I didn't spend time in a place that was unpopulated, and I really wanted to explore that. And I, I, every time I've been to the Northwoods of Minnesota, it's like a little more wild, a little less, and it's still sort of like that. Like, you can still go up and see the same thing, whereas in northern Wisconsin, you definitely, there's, the vacation home feel is a little different um, than I think it is here. There's still, like, you know, um, my aunt here has a cabin, a camp up north. I guess we call them cabins in Wisconsin. Did you call them cabins or camps here? Yeah. Oh, you do camp. Okay, so it's East Coast. I'm, I've spent time in Massachusetts and everything there is camp, um, like as in cabin. So it's a little confusing because I'm like camp as in camp that I went to, but, um, but my aunt has a place up north and they still don't have electricity. Like it's, it's still really rustic and she still chooses 
it to be that way, even though they could put those things in. Um, and so I felt like those possibilities seemed broader for me. And it was kind of interesting learning about the logging industry and sort of how that, even though some of that was happening in Wisconsin too, how that was slightly different and more pervasive in, in, in different ways because of the rivers here. Um, so it was interesting, and, and I just learned some fun facts about Stillwater tonight. <laughs> so if that makes it into a book, you know, next time, you all will be like, uh, I'll be your fact checker. That's wrong. <laughs> You're no good. That's the other thing. You have to be obscure enough that nobody can be like, excuse me, that, wh what part of Minnesota? You're like, up there, there, in the map. That'll be good. Another audience member wonders, what surprised Rasmussen most about the publishing process? Yeah, I think what's surprising about it, I think, like I said, the first time I was sort of doe-eyed about the whole thing and I was just so grateful. I was always just very grateful and I, I don't know if I would take that back, but I was a little afraid to have too much of an opinion with my publisher, too much of a, you know, I don't really think this is a great way to market the book. I, I didn't feel like I could come forward and say what I really felt. Um, I don't think I can actually say that now, but I do it anyways a little bit. Um, but I think that, I, I hate to say this because it's been a, a beautiful process in a lot of ways, but it also takes a really big toll on you. And like I said, you have to protect something for yourself because I think, I think of most authors, you know, unless you've had the sort of sweep, swept up version where you had some huge book deal and you were carried along through 20 cities and everybody's saying like, you're our person, you're our person. There are so many books published and it's really easy to feel like you're getting lost in that. And this thing you care about as much as, you know, or, you know, sort of on the level of like your husband, your own child is, you know, getting swept under things a lot and you can't do anything about that. And so I think it's difficult to let it go gracefully. Um, and that's something I've been working on to just like acknowledge that I have no control over that process. I can say, yes, this cover's awful, please, God, no, you know. But other than that, you know, it, it, was, it was making me sad, you know, looking at sales numbers and is that gonna be enough or am I gonna get another book deal? And, um, and I just didn't wanna feel that way anymore. So I feel more empowered, I feel like, this time of year, since it's been a little while since the book tour, like I was able to get that under control. And I'm proud of myself for that because I think there's some growth that way that people don't really talk about when you're what they call sort of a mid-list writer, which is fine, it's just, it takes a little negotiating how to cope with that. And when you're not connected, you know, I teach part-time at UCLA, you know, a summer course. People, I don't know if that like, always makes it on my resume because people, I think, want to, the publisher wants to put that there so that they're like, UCLA, that's pretty good. Like, we'll attach her to that. Um, and I think it might be better if I was teaching in an MFA program. If I, you know, whenever I am teaching students, I feel so much less like terrible about whatever's going on in publishing. Um, but the truth is like for people out there that aren't doing that, it's hard. It's really hard to just um, be gracious, be grateful, be all these things that people want you to be. Um, and then, you know, watch it sort of quietly go away, the book, there it is. You know, and you're like, oh, did it, do we splash anything this time? You know, um, just because there are so many. And there are a lot of wonderful books. And I don't, it's not even like the process is unfair. It's not, I think most writers get past all of that sort of childish, oh, I deserve this. It's more just like this, this 
thing that, this little thing of beauty that you want to be able to like bring light to other people and you have no way of bringing it to them. So that can be frustrating. Um, that's why it's important to have an editor that you love, who loves your book no matter what and is willing to keep going with you even if they you know, don't sell a million copies or if they do sell a million copies. Um, but it, it's tough out there. I think my MFA friends, most of them haven't published books yet and I know they would say, oh, shut up, I'd be dying to switch places with you, but it's not easy on this side either. It's not easy on that side. I've been on that side weeping, you know, there's a lot of weeping involved. <laughs> um, you know, and, and I, I sort of deal with things like I weep first and then I use humor later and that makes me feel good about it, as, as you've probably noticed. Um, but I think it's, it's hard all around. I don't, I think there's like maybe two people in the world it's easy to be a writer and they are just having like a, a nice fortunate experience probably like other jobs too. And, and this is one I do have to remember, I can be dreamy eyed about being a writer but there is a business side to it too. And I think my husband sometimes shakes me a little like, wake up, this is part of business. And you know, if you were doing any job, you wouldn't love all parts of it which I've been spoiled by because with teaching, I love all parts of it. So I feel like, why not? I, I love all of that. I should be able to love this. So uh, I think I'm a work in progress. I'm just trying to learn a little and try to be humble, try to you know, not make a total fool of myself most of the time. And um, I, I sort of live by, I'm sure you guys do people who come from good families or if you have children of your own or grandchildren, you just try to be a good example. And when I start to have those sort of negative feelings, I'm thinking, that's not how I would want my daughter to deal with that. It's okay to have them and acknowledge them, but I don't want to be an embittered writer who's like in my 70s, like, oh, I was robbed, I was robbed. You know, I, I think I just, I'll stick with the normal mom girl uh, persona. So that's part of it too. Is, not becoming bitter, I think, um, and just trying to always be grateful for the people that are reading your books, which is nice to see you guys out interested in books. Our next question is, what are some of Rebecca Rasmussen's strategies for teaching the art of writing and supporting her students? Um, you know, I'm really fortunate to teach students who are not yet in the path of having to publish which is a great blessing because I think teachers are really torn about how do I tell them about this process in a way that encourages people but that also is realistic so that if you go out there and send 80 query letters and get nothing back, you're not like totally dejected and you can still go on with your life. So um, I think I usually just try to be as honest as possible with my students when they ask, you know, what was this like for you? How did this go? I don't tell, I, I guess I don't have a magical rosy story, but I try to tell it in a way that's not discouraging either. Um, but mostly I just get the fun job of like, they don't even know what a story is yet. They're like, characters, what is that? Like, how do I even get them? What, what should they do? They're in a room in the story. I don't know how to move them. They're like, so the character now steps here. And I just get to teach them like, oh no, no, you don't have to show like each step they take in the, in the story. Um, so for me, I feel uh, lucky, and I, I actually am sure I've been so spoiled by that that if I ever get to an MFA program, I have to like really readjust my <laughs> way of thinking. They'll be like, um, "Have you been teaching preschool?" You know, because I, I go basic with that. But um, I think the students—it's such a lovely world because you just get to be hopeful and happy for them and excited for what they're doing. That inspires me greatly. And like I said, I was teaching a class this summer and. 
when I was feeling like, you know, just coming down from being on the book tour and, you know, everyone else thinking that sounds fancy, but you know that is not, you know, in any way a fancy thing. Um, it gave me, it heartened me so much. They gave so much back to me. And so sometimes I even teach, you know, straight up composition courses. And I love those. That's what, one of my favorite things because they don't, they don't know they're doing creative writing in a lot of ways. So you're sort of like fooling these future scientists and doctors and all of this into loving this world as well and considering, you know, taking a creative writing class. So I think uh, my job's pretty easy. So I try not to take that for granted and, and at least do my best there. Another audience member wonders what Rasmussen likes to read for enjoyment while she works on her own books. Yeah, when I was in grad school, I would just read everything. I was just like plowing through books. My husband is a classics guy. That's why we're out at UCLA. He's studying Greek and Latin and Indo-European languages. So he has, you know, like 10,000 books in our house. I had the other. And now I'm depressed kind of to say that I don't read as much as I used to when I was, you know, in my quote, like active learning to write phase, I think because there's only sort of certain books or voices I can handle hearing when I'm doing my own work. And I, it's hard for me to read the people I love most when I'm writing because I just start to feel their voice and I start to like wander or maybe and not even overtly doubt my own, but something sneaks in there. Like Marilyn Robinson cannot be read when I'm <laughs> writing, you know, I, all these people who set the bar super high. Um, but I do like to read nonfiction when I'm um, working on fiction. I really love that. Um, and it's been kind of fun because there's so many great formats now with, you know, e-readers and things. And my husband's always, I don't read on those, but he's always sending me PDFs of like, just really interesting articles from Scientific American. So things not even like that I would normally necessarily even have access to because I'm slow on my computer. Like I just use Word. I know how to get on the internet. I'm, he makes fun of me a lot for that. Um, so that is helpful. Poetry is also a really good thing for me to read because um, before I get going, if I'm feeling like I'm not crisp with my language or you know things have been sluggish, that helps me get back into that select each word for a purpose mode. Um, so that's been good. Fiction, you know, it's tough. I do, if I'm gonna read, I like to read something that's so wildly different from what I do that I can love it, but it doesn't affect me one way or another. It just makes me think about something like, oh, I can do my own thing in this precise way, the way he's doing it over here. Um, so I know that's usually disappointing to hear that the writer is not reading that much these days, but it's the truth, and I told you I would tell you the truth tonight. <laughs> Our last question of the night is, what is Rebecca Rasmussen working on now? Uh, my new book is about um, three different characters living in, uh, we're back in Wisconsin, sorry guys, I'll come back the next book, um, in southern Wisconsin, um, living in a small town um, that's a river town, basically kind of envisioning the Wisconsin River, down south stretch of it, and um, they end up, you know, not having any sort of connection at the beginning other than the fact that they're at the river all at the same time that this little girl falls in the water and ends up going in and they end up pulling her out together and their lives sort of become connected in um, particular ways around her coming out of that and healing and um, recovering from that accident. So there's a mother 
which is kind of fabulous to write about because um, I think I, I had like a whole plan of what I was going to tell you and I clearly went off track from that. But one of the things I was going to say was, you know, for the first two books I was really focusing on writing about what I miss. And I've been kind of thinking about that as a writer now and thinking about I'm writing now what I don't want to miss in some ways. So I'm writing a lot about um, my daughter growing up in some ways. So, so, so somehow nonfiction is making its way into fiction. And I've just been, you know, listening to her and hearing her friends talk in this way that I'll never ever remember 10 years down the line exactly how it was in that moment. And it's not like I'm writing down as she's saying stuff, but you know, when you're in the moment of parenthood at each particular phase, you just remember things and it, it's occurred to me that I don't remember those things from when she was a toddler in quite the same way that I do now and I was thinking I'm I'm missing all of this life because I'm so focused on wanting to escape to these you know faraway places that feel comforting to me somehow because they're older and they feel safer and I think maybe that's a little bit I, an, of a subliminal risk tonight in just saying like this is it this is like messy Rebecca on a page and I've worked you know hard in my life to be like together Rebecca and clean Rebecca and neat Rebecca and, and on the page and I think sometimes that's beneficial but I think it's sometimes the thing that holds you back from something greater because I realize like I'm not acknowledging this huge part of myself um, on the page and so it's been beautiful to write it because I'm in present day and you know I mean the characters using Google Maps in one section and it's like really it's just it's fun and alive to me in a different way and so sometimes it's actually it's a little hard to go back and read the other books because since they're constructed sort of completely out of imagination sometimes they can feel as the writer a little stilted or like oh I really wish I would have done this that obviously didn't come naturally or you know um, and now it's just feeling wonderful because I have a young mother going through probably the same things that I am. I have a town doctor um, and I have a wonderful friend whose father was that town doctor who's giving me all sorts of good things that I wouldn't have known like that, you know, as toys they got to play with the old x-ray films and, you know, interesting little facts um, about being in the medical world. Uh, my brother-in-law's a doctor so he's been good too. Um, and then there's this worker, um, this guy who actually pulls this little girl out of the river. His name is Everett, and he's um, a framer. And my husband used to frame houses for many years, so he's very excited to tell me about like how many board feet that will take, and you know all of the stuff that I'm like, what? And he's like, well, when you snap out a line, you do it this way, Rebecca. So he tells me way too much information, and perhaps I'll build a house one day. I don't know. Um, so it's just feeling fresh to me and I maybe in two years I'll come say yeah that's not fresh anymore but I'm excited about it now and I feel um, happy and like it's very present for me and um, and I'm loving this little girl too she's kind of changing everything for me so a little bit about it the sneak peek so thank you guys for having me and thank you to the library and NPR and all of the good people funding this thank you Well, that's it from our Stillwater Public Library event with Rebecca Rasmussen. Catch our final club book event of the season with Nikki Giovanni at Arlington Hills Community Center in St. Paul on Thursday, November 13th at 7 p.m. Meet Nikki Giovanni, get your questions answered and books signed. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons. Sign up for our e-newsletter 
check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle ClubbookMN. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to those who make Clubbook possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, Around Town Agency, the Crown Plaza Hotel St. Paul Riverfront, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.